And Father, we, we, we know that you've placed things in our lives where there's a call to action as well. Looking different ways and at different times, but um, man, your good news is just something that we just, it just should be flowing out of us, something that we can't keep to ourselves. So I just pray um, just for a further outpouring of your spirit working through our hearts and through our lives. I pray that we wouldn't uh, struggle like Pilate, um, where fear of man and crowds is, is a major deterrent for us. Um, I just pray that we'd be so lost in love with you and so covered by your grace, um, Lord, that we just have to tell people. We just have to show them love. So, Father, just speak to our hearts this morning and may it convict us and challenge us and speak to us only in the way that you can do, Lord. Because you are a good Father, like that song says, God. And I pray that we would truly, really, truly believe that. Oh, if the Christian family would just believe that you are a good father, that you truly are good. It'd be so much less fight back and negotiation and bartering. So I just thank you that you're good, Lord. Even when we can't see straight, I thank you that you're good. Even when things like they seem like they're falling apart, I thank you that you're good. Thank you that you're faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is an interesting passage. Um, As you can see in your bulletin there, we're going to talk about a couple of things. And I don't think this message will be be super long. Um, I probably just did myself in by saying that, but that definitely was not the intention. I don't don't feel like I, I have a a lot really coming from this passage here, but just a couple of thoughts and a couple of ideas. Um, Growing up in the Christian faith, and even like really what Michael just talked about, there's always always been a super strong emphasis on, like Michael was saying, boldness, on getting out of your comfort zone, on um, being loud, on making sure you're, you're being a light, um, that your relationship with Jesus Christ is super public and everybody knows. And that's like a really good thing. And the other side of that being if, if you're not doing that stuff, that that's not good, that that could even be called sin, and that that could even in some way inhibit what God wants to do because you're not quite being bold or, or vocal. And so I've always just accepted that as being true and I think there's a lot of truth in that. But I don't think it tells the whole story. I think it's incomplete. It's incomplete to... Um, think that large amounts of boldness and being super proactive is exactly the call all the time. And that the other side is automatically sinful. And I guess probably that's more our discussion we'll go this morning is if you're on the other end of that, 
well, in some way, like, that's sinning, and you're holding back from what God can do. This passage throws kind of a wrench, like, in all of that. So let me be the first to say that I think the Bible's really clear we're supposed to be a light unto the world. We're supposed to be salt. They're supposed to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when that happens, that just has a way of getting out. Jesus has said, you are the light of the world. So, there's definitely, it has to happen at some point that the Christian is, it's public. Everybody knows. It's coming out. You can't hold it back. But, there's more to the story there. And that's kind of where I think that our passage this morning kind of helps with that. Um, God has a place in his heart. And he's got a place in his will for those that are figuring it out. Like, they're processing. I heard a, a pastor uh, say a phrase, he's talking about something with somebody else, and he goes, you know, I'm not quite done thinking about that yet. And for those that are truly, authentically working out their salvation with God, there's some stuff that's just, they're figuring it out. They're not totally denying God, saying he's illegitimate, and they're not living a life in rebellion, which those are two big things. Those are two big assumptions I'm making right there. That number one, they're not saying that there is no God. And number two, they're not just purposely living in rebellion. So those are two big assumptions. Assuming that those things are happening. The question is, is does God work with a secret Christian? And if he does, what does that look like? And then if he doesn't, is that sin? So can you be a top-secret Christian and that be okay? And then, if it is okay, what kind of faith is that? Is that a no faith? Like, what is the deal? So this passage kind of throws a little... It it causes us to look at some of that. So let's take a look at it. And it's... uh, We're going to pick up in verse... uh, What do we got? 38 here? So, last week we talked about the death of Jesus, right? That's what we talked about last week. And um, our focus last week was really just two questions. Um, Well, really one question, but with two answers. Why did Jesus have to die? That's what we talked about last week. Why did he have to die? There was a lot of people that got crucified. He wasn't the only one that ever got crucified. Uh, Lots of people did for a long time. Going back to the Persians, they got crucified. It wasn't something unique to Jesus. A lot of people did. So why did he have to die and endure what he had to go through? And we talked last week about the answers to that. Number one, he had to pay a debt. He had to pay the debt of sin. And we talked about that last week, that God wasn't just up there like, well, okay, I'll just let this one go for humanity. It was, no, this was like serious business. All of humanity has been now been scarred and been removed in relationship with me. This has to be restored. My relationship with them has to be restored. 
and their destiny has to be brought back because it's more than being a sinner. So that had to happen. That was our first answer, that he had to pay for that. And then number two, the other side to that coin is, right, we are valuable, right? We were worth saving. So he had to pay a debt, and number two, we were worth saving. One, he had to pay it, but two, he wanted to pay it. That's a big difference. He loves us and he likes us. That's like sometimes very eye-opening for some people. Some people think, well, he's God, you know, he's got to love me. No, he actually like likes you too. And you matter. And all of humanity matters. So we talked about that stuff last week. And then Jesus ends up breathing his last on the cross and he says, it is finished. The work, the payment for sin is done. You still got to rise in a couple of days. But the payment that he had to pay had been paid. The debt, boom, paid. Almost totally in full, he still got a rise. So then, we pick up in verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea. So everybody say Joseph. Joseph. That's our guy there. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. It says, now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds, or some would say 100 pounds, Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So this is interesting. So what's happening and unfolding is Jesus just died on the cross um, and the deal was in the Jewish custom they had to get everybody off of the cross and remove them because Passover was coming. They didn't want anything unclean, no death visible or around anybody. And what they would do is they would quickly remove whoever was on those crosses and what they would do is they would take those bodies and basically throw them in a heap somewhere. They, you know, no regard really for them. They would just take them, and because in their mind they were criminals and thieves and had done things wrong, and so they just phew, get rid of them. So Joseph Arimathea knew that this was going to happen. So right away he runs over Pilate and says, "Hey, hey! Before you throw that out, why don't you just give us the body?" And in the meantime, what he had done is he had purchased a tomb for Jesus to be to have a burial in there. And Nicodemus, his crony, his partner, they're both part of the religious ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Say, hey, come on with me. So he comes on with him. Nicodemus brings some linens, cloth, and a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes. A hundred pounds. Let's not be at a hundred pounds of like perfume. You know, like this. Big old pack pack Nicodemus is like <laughs> going to Jesus' burial, you know, like 
wow, wow. So when they get there, and the full-on plan is to give Jesus a proper, kingly, Jewish burial. That was their full intention. This was never discussed earlier in the Bible. It was never brought up. It wasn't like Jesus was saying, hey, when I go, make sure this is set up, make sure this is in place. This is just coming from these guys. Joseph of Arimathea, a man who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, who cast his vote in and said, no, this man Jesus is innocent. I'm not going along with this. When they decided to convict Jesus and arrest him, he was saying, no, 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 no. I'm not doing that. Nicodemus, also part of the Jewish council, visited Jesus at night in John chapter 3. And we call that passage Nick at Night. We affectionately call it Nick at Night. Because you got Nicodemus coming at night secretively to go see Jesus and say, hey, Rabbi, that's actually how he dresses him. Rabbi, what's going on? He's working through stuff. So this is intriguing to me. Because you have these two guys. And they were not public followers of Jesus Christ. But yet here they are on the scene taking care of Jesus' body. All the other public figures in Jesus' life apostles, disciples, are long gone and in secret. So it's an interesting transformation and switch that now happens. You had the public ones, they're nowhere to be found now. And now for some reason you see these secret guys now showing up and recognizing that there's something important, something significant, and wanting to offer what they can. It's interesting to me. It's intriguing. And the one that's really intriguing to me is verse 38. It says, Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. So that's odd to me. And maybe it's just me. But it almost seems like in many church circles, If you say, secret disciple, that's like, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. Like, they don't go together. That's like saying, super wealthy Naugatuck. It's like, nah, not really. Not really our town, you know? Um, I don't know. I think there's other ones. But, like, they don't go together secret disciple. And what's interesting is that nowhere in the Bible does it ever condemn or shame Joseph Arimathea or Nicodemus for secretly being a disciple. And get this, the reason why they were in secret was because they were afraid. That's like the ultimate never-Christian combination. Those are like two things you don't do. You don't operate in fear, and you certainly don't operate in fear in secret. What? How does this happen? Jesus, how are you allowing this? 
Why didn't you call them out way back when and say, hey, you need to be bolder, increase your faith, I'm the real deal, let's go, it's about to happen. He never came down hard on them. It's very, very interesting. With all of that being said, I don't think it puts us in a position to just turn a blind eye and ignore the entire rest of Scripture and New Testament where it says we're supposed to be lights in this world. We're actually supposed to embody His love and the gospel to those around us. So there's absolutely a calling for the Christian to live out the Christian faith so everybody knows it. But there's also this passage where you got two secret guys who were never condemned or shamed at all in that. So I guess the question is, is what's the deal? Right? What's the deal with that? How, how do we square with secret disciples who were secrets because it was in fear? That's a good question. Right? Here's my best guess, my best shot. I think my best shot, my best guess at it is that God is completely understanding and can work with an authentic and transparent pursuit of who he is. So God is totally okay with an authentic and transparent pursuit of who he is. There is a place in the kingdom for that, and God can work with that. Something he cannot work with is total denial and suppressed rebellion. Those are things he cannot work with. And that just, that'll just freeze the Spirit's work in its tracks. Just can't have it. But when there's a sincere, God knew these guys' hearts. Nicodemus saw them at night. They talked about a whole bunch of stuff. Talked about being born again, that whole phrase. What is that? Talked about that. Joseph of Arimathea is always around and questioning, and what is the deal? So God knew in their hearts that they were seeking, searching. They knew something was right, but they weren't ready yet to go all in. I would then conclude that in the kingdom, God has a place for that. There's some situations with some people, and maybe you're one of them, where you're not quite done figuring it out yet. Hopefully you're not in total rebellion. Hopefully you're trying to live in humility. But you're also in an authentic and transparent pursuit of who he is. These guys were. And what's interesting is that Joseph of Arimathea bought this tomb on his own with his own money before Passover and this whole trial of Jesus even happened. Very interesting. And many Bible commentators believe that this really was not for himself because most wealthy religious Jewish leaders of the day, their tombs would not be amongst the criminals and an unclean area. He'd buy his rock in some other nice part of town 
it wouldn't necessarily be there. So even though these men maybe didn't quite have it figured out yet, and were kind of in fear and in secret, they were still making moves in their faith that showed that there was some faith there. They weren't just sitting on their hands and being like, eh, prove it to me, God. You know, like that wasn't... They were still making some moves of faith. So God has a place in his heart for people that are figuring it out. I've noticed that, you know, being around pastors in different churches, that it's very difficult. There's always this tension in the Christian body and in church. There's always this tension of wanting, of holiness and listening to the Holy Spirit. There's a tension of holiness. So God says in his word, we're called to live a certain way, there's certain behaviors, a certain mindset. You just don't generate and make those things happen. That come, and it doesn't happen from somebody saying with their finger at you. It has to happen from them hearing the Holy Spirit of God communicate that to their hearts. It stays, it sticks, and it lasts. And it doesn't count on a human's words or reasoning, they've connected with the heart of God on this and there's nothing you can do to shake them. So there's always this tension of within the church family and among Christian relationships of we want to maintain holiness, but yet we want people to hear from God. And so the dynamic in the church family is we want to fix a lot of people in the name of holiness because holiness is important and what that does though is it could put the church or somebody else in a position of the Holy Spirit trying to teach them, comfort them and show them what God is trying to do so it's always difficult to do that because you want to give space for the Holy Spirit to do that but God also uses people to speak on behalf of the Holy Spirit as well. So the whole thing is like very difficult sometimes. And it takes a lot of intentionality, wisdom, and failure. You just learn when it's like God speaking and when it's just not. Because you could be totally wrong. I've been totally wrong lots of times. Unfortunately, I was like, man, I really feel like that, like, from the Lord on that one. And it just, no. <laughs> just no. Wasn't that? But other times, strongly, yes, and boom, you know, it's right there. So this idea of secret, fearful Christians, I hope that I hope that doesn't translate into so all that some people may hear is, okay, cool, I could do my thing with God in secret, and we're good, it's okay, because Joseph did it, Nicodemus did it, and it turned out good for them. That's not at all what I'm trying to communicate or say. 
What I am really trying hard to do and say, and I don't even know if I'm articulating it well, what I am trying to say is that there's absolutely a place for sincere, transparent pursuit of who God is. If it's something other than that, yeah, it's not going to work out good for you. But a sincere, authentic, transparent pursuit of who he is, God works with that. There's no condemnation there. He says, my son or my daughter, they're figuring it out. They're figuring it out. And we'd be good as Christians to be able to come alongside with what the Spirit does and understand that to help accentuate that and highlight what the Spirit is doing in somebody's life. Because most of us, we just we, we are very familiar with correcting others what to do, what not to do. The Bible says this, so you do that. And, and, and truth is truth. It matters. We cannot also, we can never say the truth doesn't matter. It matters. It also matters how that truth comes out and who's delivering that truth. Because I, I would hope that our idea is that we want to make sure that the truth is received. Like when, I, when we're parenting our kids, you know, Julie and I just... Parenting is just hard. Just trying to figure out how the heck we're going to get this thing done and, and do it the best that we can. Because we don't want our kids to just listen to us now and appease us and do what we have to say and have to do now and then later go off and do their own thing. Our hearts desire so badly for them to want to do the right thing because they see the value in doing the right thing for them. That's what us as parents, like, that's what we want to instill into our kids. That's what we're trying hard to go after. It's very similar to the Christian life. God is calling us to be in relationship with him so that we can see the value in what he's saying and why he's saying it, so then we want to do it. Not necessarily because my church is telling me to do it or because other Christian people are telling me to do it. And with that being said, doesn't mean we just discount maybe some strong words from churches and Christian friends. That actually might be directly from God and from the Lord. Something harsh and something hard to hear. Happens from time to time. But it really shouldn't be a normal way of just interacting and being in fellowship. So the secret disciple idea, secret disciple in fear, God apparently knew that their hearts were in the trajectory, say trajectory, trajectory. That's an important Christian word, trajectory. Trajectory means like, where are you headed? Like, how's it going? Like, our trajectory in North Carolina was headed right into the winter storm. Like, that was our trajectory. We were headed right into that sucker, and we had no idea. I was like, how did we miss this? Like, it was all over our phones, and Julia is like, miss weather lady all the time. How did we miss this? We missed it. But much about our Christian life is trajectory. So to judge in the moment, and I did use that word judge, it's more than observe. So to judge in the moment is very tempting 
but could be very devastating. The question really is, where's their trajectory as a Christian brother or sister? Where does it seem like they're going? Where does it seem like they're headed? The answer to that question is not an easy one because it depends on us to invest into their lives before we correct them. You can't find trajectory without being around them. Otherwise, you're just presumptuous, possibly arrogantly, right? And we also don't want to fall in the position of maybe God wants to speak strongly through us, but yet we won't let him do it. Because that could be a reality too. So this is not easy stuff, right? And there does seem to be a place for that secret, fearful disciple. But here's the truth of the situation. The truth of the situation is, there's only a season of secrecy. Eventually you go public. And the walk goes public. Like it didn't stop with Joseph and Nicodemus just staying in secret and huddling together. Eventually it had to go public. Eventually, their cohorts, who are totally against Jesus and everything Jesus, and sent to the cross for being Jesus, they were going to figure out, we got some traitors in our midst. They full well knew it. So secrecy, fearful, okay. There's a place for that and a time. But there's only a season of that. We go public, guys. We go public. That's why it's exciting to hear, like right now, God is doing some things in Michael's life. He's got more stories. He's got a season of going public right now. For whatever reason. The Spirit is just doing that thing in his life right now. God's been quiet in his life for too long. And he's saying, oh, okay, Lord, then we're going public. And sometimes he might overstep his bounds. Sometimes he'll come right in line. Nonetheless, he's trying to respond. So season of secrecy... It can happen, and it can happen without sin. And it can happen with God still doing his will. But we cannot stay there forever. Because fear should never just be a predominant theme in a Christian's life. There'll be times, lots of times, where we're dealing with it. Fear just shows itself in a lot of different ways. That's right, Elijah himself, after God showed up and did a ridiculous miracle by making fire just appear out of nowhere and killing all the false prophets in the day, after that, he ends up going hiding in a cave. Like, we're just human. None of us are doing this thing perfect all of the time. So that leads us to an issue then. So number one, I hope we're good with there could be some secret fearful Christians and that could be okay. I hope you don't hear that it's always okay. And I hope you don't hear that this just should always be that way. That's just a season of secrecy that may happen. Doesn't mean it will even always happen. But it could. So then that leads us into the dynamic of, okay, then we're together as a Christian family, Christian body, 
that conversation was more focused on the individual, we're corporate, right? We live, work, and interact together. And honestly, the fruitful part of the Christian life where we really, really grow and make strides is obviously our quiet times with God, but also as we include and surround ourselves with other voices where we make ourselves incredibly vulnerable. That's what we really take off. And we're all going to be at different places. And especially in a church plant, like we have places of faith that are all over the place. So the issue that comes up is, in this situation here with these two guys, I wouldn't say they didn't have any faith. It was probably pretty weak. But it was okay for that season. It was going public. It wouldn't be okay after that. But I think they had a weak faith. So then what do you do in a Christian family like ours which God will continue to bring people in and continue to do different things, where you have some stronger faith, some weaker faith, some in the middle faith, and people just wavering. How do you become unified in such a way so you can still move together as a healthy Christian group after what God wants to do? In a way so that the mature Christian faith guys aren't like, they better get their act together and get on board. Right, and then the other way, where the weaker ones are like, they are so judgmental. <laughs> when do they get? It just turns everybody off, you know? Like, and maybe there's threads of truth in either of those. But the goal for our church family is like to not stay there. Our goal in the church family is to major in the majors, not in the minors. Just do whatever we can that leads to unity and coming together. And moving together as a church family. Because the enemy absolutely knows that there's different levels of faith, and he knows he can play on our pride in that way. And you say, well, if they were a real Christian, they should really be. And then we hear something like that. And maybe that's true, but if there is some truth there, hopefully we are now hitting our knees in prayer, being like, yeah, Lord, I. They're not seeing straight. This isn't good. I feel like I should do something, but what do I do? And hopefully that then causes this man to hit our knees and start praying. So much of our work with our brothers and sisters happens previously in our prayer rooms before it comes public with them. Does that make sense? So turn to Romans 14 and 15 real quick. Uh, just 14, and we'll close up, and we're going to do communion together. And there's a couple other passages that help to address this as well. This issue of weak faith, strong faith. <clears throat> Romans 14. Romans 14. Just a couple of highlights, and then we're doing communion. So the purpose that we're going here is because we've handled the issue of like this fearful, secret disciple, and but we still have to kind of at least talk about briefly this idea of corporately being together with weak faith and strong faith. The enemy wants to target that and disrupt that and divide that, 
we as Christians are doing whatever, hopefully, whatever we can to try and keep that. So, um, and I'll just highlight a few things here. So, Romans 14, verse 1, Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. So accepting is a big part. And, and, and it, there's disputable matters. There's things that we can disagree on, maybe worship songs, worship styles, um, particular interpretations of particular passages of the Bible, um, possibly lifestyle choices. But a lot of those probably fall under disputable, where the majors are the things really called to gather around and come around. So he's saying, hey, major in the majors, don't major in the minors. Verse 2, one man's faith allows him to eat everything. But another man, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. So it's interesting. He's painting this picture of stronger faith, weaker faith. And in this particular example, he's talking about, hey, listen, the weaker faith ones, it's, it's, it's an issue for them with what they eat and what days they celebrate. They're under the impression that if they eat less meat, and celebrate certain days that that's more pleasing to God. And the ones in the stronger faith are saying, well, God has set us free from that. I, you know, it's not really a thing for me. And so Paul is saying, hey, listen, like, people, trajectory. Trajectory. People at different stages. If they're doing it as unto the Lord and their hearts are pure about it, let it roll. Let it roll. Come together around it. Don't really, really try and make your point to really, really convince them that they should be out of, you know, which sometimes we do that stuff. It says, verse 9, For this reason Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother, or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind to not put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Not try and put anything there. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. So you can tell right away, he's saying, hey, you know, I'm telling you, no food is unclean. The days, it, it doesn't make you more or less pleasing to God. It's really the heart behind it says, but 
if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it's unclean. But listen, if you ain't there, you ain't there. I ain't trying to force this on you. This is not a major one right now. What's major is that you focus on doing this unto the Lord and to sacrifice to him. He will take care of the rest. It says, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider to be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. That's what we're after. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Right? And we're at different places on that spectrum. And there could be a season of secrecy. But it does not stay forever and it does go public. It does go public. We can't be in secret for five years. It goes public. It just happens. And honestly, what happens is as you just get closer with the Lord and He just builds into your life and you just... As you build that intimacy and you realize He makes you aware of how much you love Him, how good He is, how faithful He is, how He will provide... How could you not tell somebody about that? I don't even understand that. You almost feel like you're doing the rest of other people a disservice by keeping this winning lotto ticket to yourself. Like, I don't... You know? Like, you want to share that. Not with everybody, no. I'm too mad at someone. He doesn't need to know. I don't want to see them in heaven. <laughs> But really, like some people think that way too. It's like, heaven's better not having them. Let somebody else talk. Right? It's crazy. Yeah, it's no good. It's no good. So what we're going to do is we got a communion up here. And um, we'll, have, we'll keep the elements up here. You can come on up, take it. Uh, if you'd like to. And if you would call you know, Jesus Christ your Savior, you want to. I mean, it's something that we do. He commands us to do. If um, you feel like you don't call him your Savior, then something you don't want to do. Uh, it's not something that you just do to do because everybody's doing. It's you do because he said to, because we're actually believing in Jesus Christ and what he did. So if there's no faith attached to it, it's kind of ridiculous to even take a cup and do it. Um, so, elements are up here. Uh, if you'd like to, come on up, uh, take it, uh, and then hold on to it, and we're going to take the elements together. And then, um, Sal, you can just play in the background. Just